Welcome to episode four of The Boost with our guest, David Whitesock, founder of Commonly Well. Let's go. Welcome to episode four of The Boost, conversations with people promoting mental health. And I'm absolutely stoked to, to be here with David Whitesock, founder of Commonly Well, which we'll talk about. David, how are you? Steve, I'm, you know, I'm good. I'm in a good mood today and I'm a little, uh, I'm a little I'm jumpy on some topics. So we're going to have a great conversation. I'm, I'm thrilled to, to have this conversation. What do you mean jumpy? I like that. I'm just, um, uh, there are things that are irritating me in the world today. And so I'm ready to just pounce on a few things. Uh, hmm. I don't often get the chance to, I used to live in a very opinionated world in my previous career. And so, um, you know, I'll try to be within reason, but there's just a few things that I, especially on our topic list that I'm just like, I'm ready to, to hammer through. Cause I know you, you, you love to dig down into the weeds and throw a few layers back. And so, um, uh, yeah, I'm jumpy. I'm ready to get into it. Jumpy. Yeah. Life's a tiramisu. Let's get into it. I'm, I'm feeling, um, I'm feeling so excited to get out of interviewer mode as soon as possible and get into the flow of conversation that you and I seem to find every time we talk. I mean, it really is so fun to talk with you. So I'm going to do my best to put down my radio voice as soon as possible and just get into it with you. Um, so, so let's do it. Let's jump into this hors d'oeuvre of the conversation, which is the virtual hug and the shameless plug. So we start this every episode, the virtual hug. We'll start with just tell us somebody, something you're thankful for today. Oh boy. Well, um, well, I'd have to say I'm thankful today for, for, uh, my colleague, uh, who I had now have, have a chance to have worked with for, uh, a year coming up on a year. It'll be a year and about a week. And that's Patrick McGowan. Um, he joined this solopreneur thing that I've been on. And, uh, so turned it into a, a two person tandem and, and, um, is really helping sort of craft what it is that we're doing. And, uh, I'm glad I'm not doing it alone anymore. Mm. That's huge. I didn't know he was that recent to the organization. I'd love to learn maybe a little bit how you started commonly well and why, um, I just hired not a full-time employee, but a fractional, uh, person to help with business development on the conference side of things. And wow, what a difference that can make when you bring the right person to the team. Um, and I've met Patrick and, and he is quite the ringer and I can imagine working with him day to day. It's, it's one of those key critical hires that, you know, doubles the workforce and is, and plays a huge role in your life. Yeah. And the thing about that is, is he and I've known each other for close to 10 years. So, you know, it's not, it's not like I was hiring somebody whom I didn't know and was just trying to fill a role so I could go be more productive. It was, mm -hmm. um, who, who do I know that I can absolutely trust? Um, mm -hmm. And make sure that the hands of what we put this company into are are somebody that I um, I know is 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 believing in what I want it to be, 
and also know that he doesn't think like I do. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. um, if we were the same, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be right. And that's kind of, you know, business creation 101, you know, find somebody to work with who's not, uh, the same as you or else, you know, you're in, you're in for a world of hurt. Uh, so, you know, he brings a different perspective and, um, that, that makes everything better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's healthy. We'll have to have Patrick on sometime soon. So the virtual hug, that's that the shameless plug is that you describe yourself as a social, social entrepreneur, turning data into intelligence for behavioral health, recovery, supporting communities. And you describe commonly well as a growing, as growing an ecosystem for all to discover and design a future of purpose and well-being. So you're right in the thick of it with the with the types of people that I'm intentional about talking to on this podcast. So go ahead and just give us the plug. What what are you working on in the behavioral health space? Help us understand it and and put it in the, into the spotlight for us. Yeah, I mean, what you're reading there is really sort of commonly well version 1.0. That's <clears throat> kind of what I put my foot out first in was, you know, what is this thing going to be? And I was um, really keen on helping um, people move beyond just understanding this thing around addiction and recovery. But, um, you know, purpose and well-being and this this idea that, you know, how can we get to a place where our communities uh, design for a default the default is well-being for all. Hmm. That that's that was my uh, uh, you know initial thinking about commonly well. Um, you know our our the 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 tip of the spear. You know the thing that we could go to the market with, and you know the thing that we sell, thing that we do, is more showing up in the way you might see our materials and our language and speaking today, and that is. Um, how do we bring what we call recovery intelligence or data business intelligence to behavioral health, addiction treatment, mental health organizations, and really get it to a place where, um, you know, so much of what mental health and behavioral health care is attempting to do is sort of create this kind of longitudinal long-term outcomes measuring thing. And that's great. We need that, but they're also businesses. And what do most businesses function on real-time intelligence, Hmm. real-time data. Uh, If you ask somebody at Coca-Cola, if they knew what they did yesterday and the week before and the week after that, and what's going to impact them for the next week, going forward to the next month, they could tell you in a snapshot in an mm-hmm. instant, uh, you can't get that information from most in the behavioral health space. And so that's really what we're trying to do is, mm-hmm. is speed that up and make it much more, um, uh, real-time business intelligency, except knowing that the people where the data is coming from are patients, clients, and that's the kind of intangible challenge, uh, that we, that's the problem that we're ultimately trying to solve for a lot of agencies and organizations who are doing this in a place where data can feel, um, data can feel very antiseptic, um, Mm -hmm. and no emotion. Uh, and we need to be very conscious of these are human beings. They're the ones providing the observation and and just how do we do that? How do we do that in a ethical and meaningful way? Mm -hmm. And recovery 
capital is your index. It's not the only index out there. Um, and you, you sort of have a really handy comparison contrast between sort of the abstinence, abstinence only social conformity uh, models and indices. And then you have the recovery capital index that focuses a little bit more on well-being and life satisfaction according to this matrix. And, and it jumped out to me, you have it nice, it's on LinkedIn, anybody listening, you can find it at David's uh, LinkedIn page just in the last day or two. And you have it broken into domains and components and indicators. And, you know, so, some of the things in the indicator section jumped out to me like uh, safety and, and spirituality, um, some things that at least I didn't see in the comparison. But talk quickly about the what domains and components and indicators are and then and then let's get into kind of the that's kind of the scaffolding for the conversation but then let's get into this bigger idea of the equation of addiction that you're formulating through this index but for anybody who's new to your index help us explain what those categories are yeah well maybe the the first thing to explain is what is recovery capital Mm -hmm. Um, so let's just define that real fast. Yeah. Uh, the best way, especially for a mental health audience to think about it is, uh, it's, it's an equivalent of social determinants of health. Mm -hmm. So just as you identified safety and transportation and housing, and those are social determinants, Deter you know, economists would call those externalities, healthcare, we call them determinants and same. I mean, for every corner of the world, everybody has to reinvent their own language for some odd reason. But yeah. um, so I think it helps to sometimes do that, that translation. And so all we're really doing is we are, um, and I used this before, but we're, we're peeling back the layers. What are those, what are those um, intangible and tangible items that impact a person's mental well-being, their emotional well-being, and or if they're directly struggling with addiction, um, impact whether or not that addiction stays or it goes. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, a lot of the research and well-being kind of led us to 22 indicators, uh, that go across three domains. So you have, you, we get, we categorize them. So uh, think of the full blown assessment as being 68 items. We give it to you, Steve, you're do basically doing an inventory of your life. It's your observation of those areas mm -hmm. and personal capital is domain one. So personal capital is things like your job, your financial well-being. Are you emotionally fit? Um, you know, food, nutrition. So that's personal capital. Social capital is just what it, it is. It's what's your relationships. Uh, what's your close, tight-knit friend relationships, family relationship? Uh, what's the social net or architecture you have around you? um, uh, amongst the people that you, you, you have support from. We also include access to healthcare and social capital for a whole host of reasons, because doctors, not so much today, but up for the, like the last 80 years, you know, it was a doctor, a spiritual advisor and a spouse. Those were the top three social relationships in people's lives, hmm. um, because of what you share in those relationships. Um, and then the last category is cultural capital. And this is where it gets a little bit more esoteric. This gets to the spirituality, uh, meaning of life. What's your meaning in life? What's your purpose? What are your values? Do you know what your values are? And so 
uh, we just quantify all of those, right? It's a scored assessment. So we can score at those indicator levels like financial well-being or whatever. Um, we can roll them up into components, roll them up into the domains. But then, Steve, you would have you know, a top-level score, and that allows us to um, sort of quantifying qualitatively, uh, qualitatively and quantitatively engage in, in that person's well-being. Mm-hmm. And do I, do I understand that part of the need for this index and creating the index is, is one better data, but two, you know, from the centers for Medicare and Medicaid services or CMS, we're still, we're still just barely shifting off of sort of a fee for service model into value-based care. And as I understand it and correct me if I'm wrong or help me understand, there's a big gap when it comes to the types of information that we can collect in a, in a consistent way across experience um, between a patient and a provider. And so is some of this recovery capital index structured simply your solution for, for filling the gap that's there or, or, or what do you kind of help, help me think, is that the right, is that the right approach or are you kind of building on what they're, suggesting or requiring and then, and then adding because you see the value in the data. Yeah. I mean, the fee for service, uh, challenge is one and of its own, right? I mean, if I'm a doctor and I get paid for, you know, the number of people that I serve in a given day, that's my incentive. I want the mm -hmm. most people to come through my door. Right. Yeah. And, and so, uh, the, the, that's, that's a, ch that's a challenge around incentive alignment within that too, especially for those that operate in the mental health space is you're really operating around an individual's symptoms, right? I can't really help you as a clinician if you're one, not diagnosable and two, there aren't symptoms for me to operate with. And once those mm -hmm. are gone, what am I doing with you? Right? So there's no longer a relationship that we can have there. Um, but what we know, and this is that transition to a value-based model is, uh, the equation, if we're going to go back to that theme and open yeah. that up a bit, the equation starts to become, okay, well, what's, what's the weight of the, the symptomatic side, the pathology side of mm -hmm. your health and well-being, And then where's the, the social or the environmental factors that contribute to your health and well-being. Um, you know, when we read anything around, say, like upstream care, you know, we're talking about things like if I've got a respiratory problem, it might be that there's something wrong with my lungs. But what we're finding is about seven times out of ten, there's an external factor that contributed to that asthma or other thing. And, and what we tend to find is that now caseworkers and social workers, they'll go out to a person's apartment or home and find that it's filled with mold spores. Mm -hmm. And if you're, you know, renting and that's not your job to change those filters or change the sheetrock that's, you know, been flooded over many times and now has mold in it. Well, we're going to go after the landlord and we're going to fix the house. We're going to get the mold out of the house, clean the air and we know what's going to happen. You will start breathing better. You will need the inhaler less, right? We just, so that's what we're talking about. And so if we can get to you, Steve and say, okay, let's, 
sort of redirect our attention. Let's do a full inventory of what's happening in your life. Now, all of a sudden, I got a better way of addressing you as a total person. Hmm. Yeah. And those are, I mean, those are some of the, the major drivers of, of healthcare costs and healthcare, just healthcare generally are some of those things that we can, uh, we can just take, uh, maybe a subtractive approach or a comprehensive approach and, and finally start to add some backdrop. It's to me, this is a better way to say it for me. It's a little bit of a, a metaphor, but it's, it's like watching a play with no backdrop, back, backdrop. It's just one person, you know, on a black screen and you're just trying to find out where are you and, and, and where is this all going? And there's no other characters in the whole play. And so it's like waiting for Godot practically. It's like, well, where, what am I doing here? What are you doing here? And so for you to add the relational and the, the home and, you know, the, the filters that haven't been cleaned and the secondhand smoke coming from, you know, the aunt who's living there at the house or whatever, you know, there's a myriad of reasons and it, it, it's not always the same, but you finally get to start to drill into what's actually happening in this person's life and not simply the relationship between just the doctor, patient engagement, going down the work tree, trying to figure out and identify symptoms and then matching some phar a pharma solution potentially, not to disparage pharma solutions, but you know, that's typically where the work tree uh, often ends up. Yeah. I mean, we're, 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 uh, and I, I don't mean to demean anybody that's doing this because it sometimes becomes the nature of the job, but we're, we're basically searching out the ICD 10 codes, you know, mm -hmm. is, mm -hmm. you know, I look at Steve and I see, you know, 20 or 30 codes I can apply to you as you came in today. And that is typically what happens when you go into a hospital or you go into a clinic right now. And, and that's important because that's that fee for service system, right? The more I can attach to you, the more I can get reimbursed. And the more of that I can do within a shorter period of time, the better my revenue mm -hmm. output is. And mm -hmm. I mean, that's the business economics. Well, yeah. but none of that talked about the actual improved outcome of your life. And I think that's mm -hmm. where we, we need to shift the conversation. So what we've tried to do, and again, it's through an old school kind of way is we just put a questionnaire in the middle of it. And we just, we're getting you to tell us what, what's, what's your life like? Mm -hmm. And, and are there things that we can sort of hone in on and say, okay, yeah, these are the, um, well, these are the risk factors that are most likely contributing to your inability to can get well. And then these are the, the resilient factors, mm -hmm. or if we want to take it even further than that, these are the factors that are making you anti-fragile. That's the mm -hmm. one step above uh, resilience. And, and if we can get there, then we're, we're doing something right now. We've, we've really moved you along a progression of thriving and flourishing. And that's really what we, what we should be focused on as healthcare providers, um, not keeping you in a, in a dependent system of care. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And to go back to your point about incentives, you know, fewer things more valuable than, than watching the money and talking with people with skin in the game. And you mentioned anti-fragile and, you know, Nassim Nicholas Taleb is, is somebody I've, I've read a lot of and doing my homework this last week 
on you. He's a little, he could be a little jumpy. You know, he's got some, <laughs> he's got some opinions at the long uh-huh. tail of both sides of things. So I'm not forgetting that you, you got, you got some things to say. Um, but he, he talks about, you know, if you go to a doctor, don't ask, don't ask what you should do, you know, ask the doctor what they would do if they were you, or it's the same for financial advice, you know, only ask an advisor, what are they doing with their money? You know, that you don't need to ask them what to do with your own money. Um, because that's where the incentive structure is really at its roots. And that's where, that's where an MD can be so incredibly valuable if they, especially if they procrastinate a little bit on the going down the workflow and, and talk with you about your life. Um, and it, and it pays off in business ways. I mean, I think, uh, let's see. Yeah. Malcolm Gladwell did that study on, uh, on doctors with bedside manner who hung out in the room, like an extra five minutes or something like that. And they were sued tremendously less than doctors just going through as quickly as possible. So, you know, there is actually a, a business case to be made, but it's, it seems like it's hard to make. It seems like there's been reticence to pay for, mental health and, and, uh, access for all and well being for all. It, it doesn't seem like, um, the market has fully woken up to the opportunity that exists because I don't know. I mean, you tell me it just kind of just what it seems with the struggle for payers, but, uh, like we're, we're making strides, but it's not there yet. Yeah. I mean, so this is where I can get jumpy cause I have a theory on this. Um, I think, I think the healthcare system isn't getting there and the mental health side of things is, is falling by the wayside. It's collateral damage in this issue because there is no true consumer reaction to what healthcare actually provides in terms Mm. of care. Meaning um, you and I are a little bit different. Let's say for the, the majority of the United States, most people get their health insurance coverage from their employer. It's something Mm -hmm. like, 60% of people, that's how they get their insurance. Right. And so, yeah, they, they, they don't really pay a pre uh, a premium, their employer pays it for them. So you've disconnected the consumer of the, of the service or the good from the provider of that good. And I can say all I want to my provider about a better experience being treated better, but I'm not the, I'm not the stakeholder. Mm-hmm. The insurance company has a stakeholder relationship with the employer, mm-hmm. not the employee. Yeah. I'm just a downstream beneficiary. I don't matter. And so if you, if you take this into a historical pose, um, why do we all watch Netflix and Hulu now? It's because consumers were sitting down in front of their television and realizing in real time that their cable box of 355 channels, which the cable companies said we, we wanted, mm-hmm. we were like, well, I don't, I don't, I watch four of these channels. Mm-hmm. I watch ESPN. Uh, I watch, um, NBC. I watch comedy central and, and that's it. <laughs> Why am I paying $200 a month for this? And so mm-hmm. people were unhooking, right? They were getting rid of their cable boxes and they were just watching Netflix. And so mm-hmm. the market responded. And now all of a sudden HBO and Paramount and all the ones and Comcast and all these others who used to be the cable providers are now streaming providers because Mm -hmm. consumers spoke. We haven't got to that place yet in healthcare 
And I don't know when it's going to happen. I don't know how it's going to happen. I don't know how consumers actually make this argument because it's really hard for, especially for like therapists and mental health providers in particular to just say, you know what? I'm a cash only provider. I'm going to only cash only and, and I'm going to pretend like I'm a restaurant and I'm going to have a menu of options and people will come in and just pee me out of their pocket. But that's hard when that same consumer also has insurance, which is which should cover their health care, right? Mm -hmm. And that's that's the disconnect. And and the, there's only one group of people, probably like 30% of the adult of the American population that could say, you know what? Yeah, I know I pay you know, $1,800 a month in premiums, but I'm going to go pay $500 a month because my mental health matters and they have that discretionary income to do so. And so, um, that's, I think that's, that's the big, huge, hairy problem that just nobody is really getting after. And consumers just simply don't have a voice because we're not called consumers. We're called patients. We're called beneficiaries. We're something else. Mm -hmm. We don't have direct market action in healthcare. And I think that's a massive problem. Hmm. Wow. There's, uh, there's so much there, including to go from the start, the premium idea that, that the company is paying the premium, which is really simply a mitigation against risk. And we're the beneficiary downstream. You know, if you're kind of taking that insurance policy from the company, which is more or less feels like it's kind of forced on you, you know, in, in a lot of environments or it did when I was kind of coming up through career mode. Um, and then it, and then it gets into, for me, it gets into a number of things. One, the cable company problem. And we're seeing a lot of consolidation. I think um, we've seen it across healthcare. We've seen health systems kind of in a land grab and a national movement um, you know, even across maybe a specific service line. And then I think we're seeing it in mental health and behavioral health too, where there's quite a bit of consolidation and merger acquisition, frothiness, especially in the last couple few years. And, um, you know, again, to circle to Taleb, there's, it's like having an elephant as a pet, which is if you have the means and the money, it's okay to, to feed the elephant. But when things get tight, that's when, it becomes really hard to buy elephant food every week when you have opportunity costs. So for a while, the streaming services kind of laughed at the cable company or the cable companies rather laughed at the streaming service. And um, to me, it feels a little bit maybe like that right now with, uh, with payers and health insurance companies kind of saying, well, I don't know that we necessarily need mental health care when we still have all of this bio health to take care of. And that's where, there's really downtime and, and mental health is a little soft, but, but it just seems like we have it backwards to me in that regard. When I look at my own life, when I look at my own experience and, and, I, and I start from there, instead of trying to boil the ocean with the world and knowing that I'm an individual and different than other people, um, the, to wrap, the, the concept of agency to me has become more and more important, which is how much can I do for myself with the intent based on my own incentive structure and selfishness to be as good as I can be. And there's, there's something there on the vertical and the individual, but you mentioned something about the, 
the the need or responsibility for community, a community mindset when it comes to approach. Um, let me go. Oops, let me go back to the note real quick. Yeah, you talk. You you mentioned as collective responsibility versus personal responsibility. Talk a little bit about that. That was fascinating to me. Yeah, you know, this is this is a hard concept, I think, for a lot of us in America to to spend time in because we have a very individualist um, orientation. And you know, as I was going through the process of trying to create an assessment to measure well being, I was very fortunate that I got to go spend some time in Denmark. And with the people at the Happiness Research Institute, and so you know, when you go and sit in a in a in a culture which is much more community oriented, mm -hmm. and you and you just like sit at you know go up into the balcony and just watch for a bit. How do these people live as opposed to reading something that's biased one way or the other? But just actually go there and watch it. Um, you start to really understand that the way people tend to live in communities that are more community oriented is um, it's much more hyper local. It's hyper local because it, and what, what happens is you, you get into greater relationship, more intensity of relationship with fewer people, which allows you to know people. And when you know people, you build up your social capital and you have more social capital, you have more trust. When you have more trust, people will start to take care of one another in ways that you don't plan for. So as a, for instance, um, I, and I had never experienced this before and it blew my mind. Uh, I'm going to a coffee shop to just sit down and, and work cause I'm an American and that's what we do. And um, there's nobody in the coffee shop, but there's, there's a group coming out and it was two women and outside the coffee shop was a stroller with a baby in it. <laughs> And my mind, you know, just like, I just froze. I'm like, what, what's happening here? There's a baby out and there's nobody, there's no adults around. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm looking around and I look in the coffee shop and I'm like, it can't be those two women. They left their kid out here. And sure enough, they just came out happy as clams. They got their coffees and danishes and they grabbed the stroller and they just move on down the street. And I, mm -hmm. my, I just, I, I didn't know what to think about that. Well, there's such, even, I'm even a foreigner but they have great social trust in the fabric of their little local community that that is okay. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I'm talking about um, in, in an individualist kind of society in which we operate, we take it the other way. We say, well, look, Steve, if, if you mind your side of the road and I mind my side of the road, that'll have a net benefit for everybody. But in reality, that's not working out for us in our communities, in, mm. in, in, in our country, it's not working out. We've got, we've got eroding social trust. And so, um, that's what I'm kind of talking about when we talk about community ver a community minded approach versus something else. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. Um, there's so much here. There's so much here, David, I'll try to process in real time. Um, <clears throat> I'll just, I'll just go from the light to the heavy, but it, it reminds me of that uh, Jack Handy deep thoughts from Saturday Night Live, where he said, I can imagine a world without war and without violence. And I can imagine us totally taking over that world because they'd never see it coming, <laughs> you know? So it's like, 
the baby the baby stroller outside the coffee shop is the is the uh canary in the coal mine to say are you living in a in a community and a culture a society that you inherently trust and also it's deep like the there's a couple people who say it but einstein says it like one one of the most fundamental things you can you can uh decide is to paraphrase is whether the world is a safe place or not and that's easy to say but when you start to experience aces or you know severe trauma over and over and over again we're also creatures of habit and trend spotting and safety so you know the tiger attacks you in the jungle often enough and you say this was a this is actually a very dangerous world and i need to have some kind of some kind of structure or plan in place to stop getting attacked by the tiger so um so that gets really heavy into the types of communities and relationships and and friendships and and family that are around us and there again there's a huge range yeah and that so that gets to kind of my my other belief about you know you have to work the equation so you're opening up the opportunity to view the equation i think the other side of that equation is for those people that don't have the adverse childhood experiences or haven't experienced all the trauma the 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 variable now becomes to you to be and improve your emotional quotient hmm. how are you in relation to the other folks in that particular community and if, and if you just say well i'm fine you're not it's your problem well hmm. again we've shifted the burden when in reality uh the burden for that safety falls to the people that are already safe in a lot of ways. And, and I think that's hard for people to say, well, I, I need to change my behavior to make you feel okay. Yes. Yes, you do. You actually do. Hmm. Yeah. And, and there's, so there's still the individualist approach. I think that's applicable, which is how am I compared to me yesterday or last month or, you know, some, some way to measure that. And also, again, to speak from my experience, um, a little less data driven than yours. Um, but I could speak to it, which is when I started to really dive into emotional honesty and just emotional awareness, you know, talk therapy and counseling and how that emptied me out to be able to be something of use to other people. It was phenomenal to watch. And it was it was logarithmic. It was exponential in terms of the potential people that I could maybe impact, um, you know, dozens and then hundreds and then thousands. And it's fascinating. And I, I do think, I do think that, uh, my, I mean, my best guess is that we'll always have mental illness and significant addiction challenges um, for a myriad of reasons that are always going to require a safety net. And, and if we turn a blind eye to that, that's, that's going to be continue to be a problem where our, our hospitals, our prisons and our prisons, are hospitals and all sorts of backwards sort of system arrangement. Um, and then to your point, the, the, the biggest thing I think is how we tax ourselves, you know, how we, 
and I would love to hear a little bit more about addiction and the equation of addiction, um, because that that will help me understand. I've been I've been focused a lot on the mental health sort of side and got into the psychoanalysis side, which was a lot of fun with with Jung and others, uh, and then into psychotherapy. But um, but you're you're richly versed in in the equation of addiction as you're talking about um, and and how to work the equation. So, um, you know, talk a little bit more about that when it comes to addiction specifically, um, just, just kind of shed some light on that for me, somebody mostly focused on the mental side, mental health side. Well, I think you're still in the right place and let's just start there from, from mental health. I mean, most addictions, almost all addictions come from a root of a mental disconnect, some, uh, dissonance, right. And, you know, all of us have a proclivity or a, a need for something greater than what we should have. And it can have negative consequences in our life. But, you know, when we start to talk about addiction, we kind of lean on a, on a couple, you know, drugs, the, the hard drugs and alcohol in particular, um, maybe cigarettes, but not so much anymore. Gambling is kind of coming up. So like those are the, like, we'll call those like the top four, uh, yeah. sex, maybe top five. And so, um, you know, we think about those addictions, they, they, they don't just happen, right? It, it does require a, a couple of things, a couple of variables in that addiction, in that equation. You know, one is what are my actions? What are my behaviors? What am I doing? Okay. So let's just use alcohol as an example, because that's an easy one. If I'm drinking regularly, every single night, every single day, alcohol is an addictive substance in many ways. Um, you will get dependent upon it a lot like caffeine. And then, then there is a biological factor. Some people just don't have the ability to process and metabolize that, that substance in a particular way, specifically neurologically. And so therefore um, that gets now to the serotonin and the dopamine things. And so we've got a deep, a deep desire or need for, for pleasure. Cause we don't have enough of the pleasure forming receptors on our own. And then you just take it into the next part. And that is the behavior patterns that come after that, or the thought patterns and the mental health patterns that come around that. So if you are, you know, if, if you're experiencing greater anxiety or you're experiencing greater depression um, or some other psychosis, an addiction is a great complement to those things because it gives you the escape from those other things. And so all of it's intertwined. It, 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 when you look at it in that totality, you can start to say, well, and I'll just, again, I'll speak from my own experience. Um, when I started to treat my anxiety, when I started to treat my depression, the addiction disappeared. It just poof, went away. Hmm. Yeah. I had to work through a new process of recovery of living. I had to go through that process because you know, when you spend 12 years deep into depression, deep into social anxiety and deep into hard addiction, you've got to retrain a few things, right? Mm -hmm. You've got to retrain how to live and how to process. And so that takes time. And, and I, I think that's getting at it is how do you start to pull those things apart as opposed to kind of what we do now, Steve comes in, I see that you have a problem with drugs or alcohol. Okay. I'm going to treat that. Oh, you've mm -hmm. got depend, uh, depression too. I don't treat that. So you've got to go over there. And now all of a sudden we've pulled you apart 
And that's a problem, right? Mm -hmm. I have you going in a bunch of different places. And one person is giving you a different strategy. Another person is giving you another strategy. They aren't cohesive. They don't match. And, and what do you do as a human? You're just like, I'm done. I'm going to go find the easy hedonic thing that I'm used to. That's just going to sustain me at a place of, you know, what um, Talib would say. I'm just going to find a, 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 a manageable, fragile state. Mm -hmm. I'll live in the chaos because I can live in that chaos. I know the chaos. The chaos is my friend. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Everything else, these other people, that's chaos I can't control. And you're not helping because you're sending me in a lot of different ways. So uh, that that's kind of how I parse that apart. Um, it creates challenge to talk about that because we get into a lot of people's different silos and territories and mm -hmm. expertise, but you, you kind of almost have to do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. For me, the intimidating part is the galaxy of the mind and what we, what we don't know about the biology of the mind yet. So there's, there's all of that, but that's, that's thinking global. And for me, acting local was okay. Let's be, let's be brutally honest with myself and start on the mental health side. And I went in fully into this engagement with a, a licensed professional counselor thinking I was definitely in need of some medication that would probably happen after a couple sessions. And he, he blew me off so badly about that idea and went into some other factors that for me was, was a real solution. And I was surprised by that. And, um, and I was pretty, also pretty ignorant about how the whole system worked at the time, you know, five, six years ago. So, um, so that's interesting that while it's a complexity addiction, it oftentimes stems from the, either the, our, our sort of social relationships or lack of, or our hedonistic desires and, and where we have been maybe um, resisting or not resisting and more importantly, where we've been maybe not tapping into our emotional and, and mental health like we could in order to not treat a symptom, but get to the, get to the disease or get to the, the real fundamental first, uh, first kind of core root of it. Yeah. And this is where it gets really challenging when we start yeah. to think about it in the way that you and I are talking about it. Cause we're really talking about it on an individual plane. Mm -hmm. And, but if we step back and say, well, okay, there's, there's 46 million people, according to the last NSDUH survey from SAMHSA that says those individuals could walk into a, a therapist tomorrow or today and get diagnosed with substance use disorder at some level, 46 million of us. Um, that's an enormous number. It's up like some 20 million from two years ago. I mean, it's huge. It is a massive increase. And so mm. why is that? What's going on there? Is it just because we happen to find more people that you know happen to have the, the biological marker for addiction? I doubt it. Um, in my view, it, it, if you just step back and look at all the rest of the data, it's, it's a couple factors. One, our environments are truly poorly designed. They don't maximize or optimize for our health and well-being. We are a individual car centric society. So we put ourselves in these boxes and we drive for hours to go from one place to the next. And you've got to go 
miles and miles and miles to go get basic needs. You, you just talk to nobody. You, you interact with nobody except for pushing a horn and there's stress and there's noise and there's constant motion. It's mm -hmm. not, it, that's not the way that we should be living our lives. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and so we do that. We have this constant drone of stress on us. Mm -hmm. And then we go into a big box store or a lot of these other environments. And there's a bunch of whizzing 4,000 pound machinery around us. More people are getting hit by cars today. More injuries are coming up, broken bones and, and, and traffic accidents are car versus pedestrian. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing an increase in fatalities between car versus pedestrian um, because cars are getting bigger and roads are getting less safe. And so we have all this stress that's coming upon us, right? And, and now we're spending more time on these things. We don't actually engage one-on-one -on -one with each other. And so we find escape and we're mm -hmm. looking for these things and COVID didn't help, right? So um, addiction's never, we're not gonna, I, I always say, I, I, I wanna solve addiction, but we're never gonna solve addiction. Humans are always gonna be addicted to something. Mm -hmm. That's a natural thing. We're gonna, we will experience addiction. Everybody experiences some form of addiction in their life, hmm. whether it's coffee or drugs yeah. or something. And so, but what I, to, to, to go back to our, our friend, uh, Talib, I, I think we can, we can build for, uh, a robust or anti-fragile state, which requires us to rethink our built environment, our built systems where we can eliminate stress. We can de-stress mm -hmm. systems. Uh, yeah. Or if we go to some other folks, um, uh, if we think about sort of uh, sludge, right? The behavioral economists, Danny Kahneman, Cass Sunstein, and, and um, Richard Thaler. Let's mm -hmm. remove the sludge. Like, mm -hmm. Let's nudge people in new systems that go more towards um, a, a much more improved state and, and now some might be listening to that and go, but David, you're talking about like some Jedi trickery, getting people to do things they don't want to do and removing agency. And I'm like, yeah, you know what? That happens everywhere huh. in all the systems. It, we're being marketed to left and right. And so um, if we could, we, we work it out, out so that more of us are more healthy, uh, healthy and well. Yeah. Uh, sign me up. Yeah. Uh, we're just going to, we're just going to go full to lab here. And, uh, he talks about, uh, you know, you can only convince people who believe that the convincing will help them. So, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, there is, there is, there's this, there's this new passion that I'm, that I'm on because I'm trying to figure out what I'm doing. What am I doing with the boost? I'm pretty clear what I'm doing with the conference, but what am I doing with the boost in real time? It's this unfolding. Um, and, and I think I'm stumbling into it um, to your point about the cars and the sludge, when I went to a silent retreat, total silence for a few days, talk about an emptying, talk about the most uncomfortable thing you can do is sit with yourself in silence. And it's so hard for us to do. And that's a fascinating point about that almost everybody or everybody you said has some sort of proclivity to some kind of addiction. And, you know, that reminds me of Jung and the, and the shadow self and even in the sort of, I was listening to this Alan Watts lecture and how he says, Jung had this glimmer in his eye that kind of let you know, yeah, I'm a, I'm a rascal too. You know, I'm, you know, I'm not, 
I'm not this ubermensch. I'm just, you know, this person just like you. And I can accept that in myself and accept it in you. But I lived in LA and I drove the LA, for, well, I lived in Orange County, south of LA. So I would commute into LA and talk about a dance, an 80 mile an hour dance. And what I would do is imagine the people in the road with no cars. And so all these people just hovering, sitting and what they were doing. And that, that was the only thing that helped me keep my humanity with the people as I, you know, as I floated my Toyota Camry within inches of their bumper and trusted that they knew the rules. And when somebody didn't know the dance, then it was hell to pay, you know, some way, um, and, and usually bad or ugly. So, um, so that, that all takes me there because, uh, LA traffic is, is you get into that such a smooth dance, uh, that when it goes wrong, then it's very, it's very fragile, like most smooth things, you know, and it just blows up on you. Um, so, and then, and then to wrap that, um, to wrap sort of a response to what you were talking about, the sludge, when I came back from the the silent retreat and started to go into, into therapy, talk therapy, and then into a writing exercise, it was like I was releasing sludge from my brain every morning and it just builds up. And so nudging this sludge out of myself that, I mean, what you said just absolutely resonates with me and my growing passion for helping people clear out, you know, and there's a, there's a state of flow, but it's, it's not simply flow. It's like the subtraction of all the things that don't cause the flow is what, is what we should maybe be more focused on in some way. And then the flow is the natural state. Yeah. There's two things I want to react to there. And one is, um, the, you know, I've done a silent retreat as well. I did a five day <clears throat> silent retreat meditation. Um, my wife came along, so we did this together but separate. And, you know, we were four, five years into our, our marriage. And I guarantee you it was the, the most remarkable experience we've ever had as a couple, uh, being unable to speak to one another for five days, but being able to sit with each other hmm. at the breakfast table or lunch or dinner and have oh. to sort of communicate with each other. Like, how are you doing? I mean, this is hard. Like she's not the meditator. This wasn't her thing. This was my thing. I was bringing her to my world and, and, and trying to find out, is she okay? Right. Without words that, that for a relationship that was gold, um, it's paid off, continues to pay off. Whether we talk about it or not, it's, it, it's just built now into our relationship. Um, so I highly recommend that for anybody who, hmm just wants to learn about yourself. And the, then that gets to the subtraction part so much of, and, and I, I will find myself being stuck in this because I'm, I'm trying to add a solution to a, an industry, but so much of what we see coming into mental health and behavioral healthcare are all these additive things. Mm -hmm. Add this, add this, add this, add this. When in reality, what we should probably do is, pause, maybe go hang out at the Stanford D school for a couple of weeks mm. and bring in the folks from IDEO and go, let's, let's, let's take a design approach, a design thinking approach to what we're actually doing in our clinics 
And I guarantee you what you're going to come away with is a reductionist solution. You will pull more things out than you will probably add. It's probably going to save you a bunch of money. It's going to, it's, it's going to scare the hell out of your staff because they think they're going to mm -hmm. lose their jobs. Um, mm -hmm. But it's probably the end benefit is going to make your patients a tenfold happier simply because you're going to make the experience better. And whether, and this is, this, this upsets people when I say this, my sense is that, and you, maybe you had this experience, but you know, most therapists are very good at what they do. But when I go back and think about what, tip the scales. It wasn't necessarily one particular thing. It was a comprehensive experience that I got from where I went. So there's a lot of like placebo factors playing into account. Like, mm -hmm. you know, what was the space like? Was it set up in the right way? Did the lighting fit for me? Um, was the sound right? Was I distracted by anything or not? Did the people care about me? Was there dignity and respect in the whole process? Um, was I left with a good taste? in my mouth from that experience. If you think about Daniel Kahneman and his work around, you know, um, uh, colon operations, cause that's what <laughs> he found is that, you know, when you talk about the remembering self versus the experiencing self, that last few minutes of the experience, if it's not as painful, despite mm -hmm. it's a painful experience, you remember it better. Yeah. Recency. Now in, in our world, in, in, in detox facilities, if we just applied that principle to detox facilities around addiction, I guarantee you more people would probably just stop mm -hmm. drinking and never come back again. But we don't, we don't apply that science to that experience. And, and if we did, I think we'd probably find fewer people coming through our revolving door of care systems. Um, so yeah, let's subtract. I'm, I'm a huge fan. Uh, of, of the notion of subtraction. Cause I, I think hmm. um, it clears up places for us to start to think about where can I add that's meaningful, that's purposeful. I'm a big fan of uh, us creating a design thinking consultancy that goes to behavioral health facilities and <laughs> in a reductionist subtractive way uh, improves the experience and the hospitality and, um, and just the approach through a blend of data and design sort of story and structure and a true patient or client customer centered approach. Um, because I had a similar experience, you know, guy was great. Um, office was great. I love a good placebo. It's all the benefits of medicine but it's just sugar, you know, and our, our brains love a little bit of sugar. Um, but we just keep pouring piles and piles of sugar on our brains. And that's, a, that's another problem, you know? Um, so what are we doing in the, what are we doing in the therapy space that we can reduce and chip away and, and not losing any, any of the efficacy and maybe get clearer about either eventually fewer measurables that are most important, sort of the Pareto's principle. What is this 80% that leads you um, down this path that you want to go or um, trying to trying to find and, 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 and demystifying it. I mean, the way that there's still some a, sort of a cloud of, of mist for me around the addiction space, you know, as I walk into it and learn a lot more about it. Uh, and you help me blow some of those clouds away today. Um, think about just 
the general nine to five worker or consumer and um, that it's not that there's a lack of education or access, but it's a lot of it's opportunity cost and, and, and realizing that, oh yeah, this is something I should pursue. And, and the optimist in me says, we are, we are spiraling upward toward, you know, it's not some nirvana, you know, it's not, it, I, I won't say that, but it is a walk toward even to see the spiritual on your index and not on some of the others, you know, that's, that's a critical component toward once you get your food and your home, right. And your relationships, right. Your finances, right. You know, there is, there is more work to be done and it's never ending. It's sort of a journey, but I don't know. That's, that's where that all takes me. I'm not sure there's a, a fine point I can put on it. No, I think you're right. I think what what I'm hearing you say, Steve, is that, and this, this is something that we have to talk with the people that we work with often because, you know, we're measuring on a scale from one to 100. And so people will be like, so I'm good when I get to a hundred. I'm like, you're not going to get to 100. You know, um, you're never going to get to the mountaintop. You're, you're constantly on the road, kill him. It's exactly it. And so, um, whatever order you put those things in, you know, whether spirituality comes first or last or whatever, um, you know, do you, do you feed your belly or do you feed your soul or do mm. you do them both at the same time? Um, these are constant human questions. Uh, but I think for a lot of people that have experienced significant, uh, challenges and, and adversity and, and traumas in their early life, they just were never taught either through nature or nurture how to do that, how to process mm -hmm. that, how to think about that. Yeah. They had to go to church every Sunday, but what, what was that? You know, you know, um, what was the I hope greater you're purpose answer that, that question? <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I hope you're going to answer that purpose? question about what church was because my, my dad was a pastor at a community church and I, I sat in the front row, second row for like so many years of my life. Um, got zero business acumen from him, but you know, and there's, there are two ways you're right. You can come from, you can come from the math and the, the basic needs into the, the esoteric beauty, or you can come from the esoteric beauty and the spirituality into, uh, oh yeah, I should, I should feed my family because you know, some things water fall down from that, but go ahead. You were, you were riffing. Well, no, no, no. And I'll just, I'll just add, you know, one other piece to that is, and I think this might sort of challenge the thinking of a lot of folks is, um, I think we've done enough awareness. I, I think there's plenty of awareness about mental health in, mm. in our world. And, um, I think what we need to get to now is it's less about awareness is like, who are you as a mental health provider and, 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 and very getting very specific about who your audience is and, and knowing that profile of a person and speaking to them and, and allowing them to come to you, right? It's, it's very much a product marketing orientation now. Like we've done the awareness. Everybody knows mm -hmm. mental health is an issue. Everybody knows addiction is an issue. Everybody knows if, if you haven't heard that we have an opioid crisis or you haven't heard that a hundred thousand people have died of an overdose, or if you haven't heard that, you know, 40% of, of men in the last 10 years have had a 10 X reduction in their, their, their friend group over the last two decades. If you haven't heard any of that stuff, you're living under a rock. So, and there's few of us that live under rocks these days because this doesn't let us do that. And so, um, I would say do awareness as you need to, but hone your message to get to the people that really need the support. 
Um, I think that'll be a much more um, beneficial, fruitful uh, use of your time. And and if you really know your geography, again, if we're going to go into like the business terms, if you really know your serviceable, addressable market mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and do those client profiling and who am I speaking to? I, I think you will, you will be happier as a provider. You will be happier as a community contributor. Um, you'll have a successful practice that'll go on for as long as it needs to in a community for supportive people. Cause we're not going to get rid of mental illness. We're not getting rid of distress. Mm-hmm. There's always going to be grief, right? We're always going to lose people. We're always going to lose dogs. We're always going to lose things that we need support around. So, yeah. um, you know, find a way, I, I, I think of it this way, I, I, you know, people sometimes ask me like, you know, what is, what does our community need? I'm like, I don't know, you tell me. But when I think about that, and, and I live in a small village in Northern New York, and we've got two people, two guys that cut hair. One is about 90 years old. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and every time I've gone in there, I come out looking like Dennis the Menace, like it's 1955. So I'm not going yes. there. <laughs> he knows one haircut. Yeah, <laughs> he dad, exactly. And then the other guy um, is young and hip, and it's always full. But we need a we need we need a barber, right? Um, we need some counselors. We need mm-hmm. some fire people. We need teachers. We need lawyers. We need doctors. We need we need core things. Mm-hmm. How can you be part of that core contributory factor back to that community? mindset of, 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 of building that social fabric. And, and I think if you get that right, if you think about your geography, if you get that right, and there are pockets in the United States, um, uh, there's the concept of the blue zones, but there are a few pockets where there's greater health, there's greater well-being, there's greater financial well-being, um, there's less, you know, use of healthcare services. There's a few of these pockets around the U S. Um, and I think it's largely because they do take that approach mm-hmm. of a much more, what's, what's, what's the, what's, what's the amalgamation? What's the, the algebra of this calculus that, that we all need to have for everybody to be able to thrive. And mm. If you, if you just think about that from your community, as opposed to like the digital health venture backed, I've got this thing that I have to scale at like 30 X in the next 30 months. That's, I, I just kudos to you. If that's your business, if that's what you're trying to do. Um, but my sense is that we've learned this over the last 20 years, those things aren't contributory contributing to a decrease in the ultimate problem. We've got to get super local, super hyper local and go deep mm. in the places that we are um, and, 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 and measure that profusely to know that we're actually having that impact in, in the very specific spaces in which we work. So um, I mean, like that's my, that, that's, that's where I'm jumpy. Cause that's like, we I want to get people to be just thinking more local um, yeah. as opposed, I got to scale my business. I need to go to that community and that community. It's like solve the thing in your community first. And if you do mm-hmm. that, your legacy is set. If that's what you want. Hmm. I want to talk to you for another two hours over a non-alcoholic Guinness, but we're gonna, we're gonna wrap, but you did put a really fine bow on that. 
and that's where we should stop. Um, I hope people, I got to encourage people to listen all the way through because it just, it just got better and better. You're such a pro. Uh, you've got the, those early radio days that just, it just shines through. Um, you know, you're just an expert. Um, you were awesome last year, uh, at the mental health marketing conference as a speaker, you're coming back this year to talk SMS, but, but much more than that, really, that's sort of the, maybe the tip of the spear of what you're going to be talking about in your stinger presentation and, uh, and the lunch and all. So thanks for being on the show, David. It's, it's always a treat to talk with you. Um, I'd love to invite you back again soon and talk with Patrick too, but, um, thank you. No, thank you, Steve. I'm honored. Um, and I appreciate your, your kind words and the work that you're doing. You're creating a community of people that are they're really genuinely trying to to solve big challenges, and so uh, I'm just thrilled to be one little little tiny piece of it. And I, I love this conversation that you're you're brewing up. So congratulations to you. Me too. I love it. Oh, thanks so much. All right, we'll sign off. Have a good one, David. <laughs>